it's in the hands of the ATO in the first instance to decide whether they think that there has been an activity which has the sole or dominant purpose of maximizing the cash flow boost and then ultimately in the hands of a court to determine that. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. think of it as the cash boost, but it's actually the cash flow boost, isn't it? Cash flow boost, yeah. I've been talking about the cash boost, but ah, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's the cash flow boost. I need to concentrate and say that correctly. Welcome to a new COVID-19 update of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. The cash flow boost, you sent in queries and made a lot of very valid points. So Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal will go through these today. There are seven conditions you need to meet to qualify for the cash flow boost. The first three, the turnover, existence and activity test, we already covered in detail in the last update about the cash flow boost. So today we focus on the other four conditions or tests. Here's Andrew. is just the administrator they are not the legislator so they are limited to what they can allow and can't allow within the legislation so the only leeway they really have is well part 4a in general but in this case the anti-avoidance provision that's in the uh, cash flow boost act absolutely i mean as with any tax law the ato doesn't make the law and the ato's view of the law is distinct to the law itself and ultimately The ATO's job is to administer the law, but if a taxpayer is unhappy with a decision of the ATO, it's for a court, the judiciary, to make that final determination, so the federal court or the administrative appeals tribunal. So that means in the end, we always need to go back to the Act and see what the legislation actually says. Yeah, and that's the real danger, not only here, but in other areas of law, on relying on things like ministerial statements or broad brush policy intentions or what it's trying to do in a general sense. Because at the end of the day, a court looks at the legislation used and applies statutory interpretation principles around the words used in the Act. And the courts are pretty clear over a number of decisions that their job, their job is not to and that they don't have the ability to remedy legislation that's that has defects. If it's very clear that the legislation has defects, using that term broadly, but if it's very clear that it has defects, then the courts have to apply it as is. They don't have some sort of free reign to sort of make it up as they go. There's what we call the sort of black letter law, which is, you know, the particular provisions and whether you fall in or out. In this case, you know, what payment did you make and and how much is the withholding, sort of that kind of thing. But then there's also what's called the grey law or the fuzzy law or the avoidance law, which is this sort of big looming beast in the background that's generally known as part 4A in the context of federal income tax. And in the context of this particular act, there's an anti-avoidance provision that that is similar to Part 4A. Jumping straight in, Hmm. does the cash flow boost require pay-as-you-go withholding registration as 
of the 12th of March, 2020? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's sort of been some conflicting things out there on this one. And I haven't seen it directly from the ATO's website, but there definitely seems that there's some conflicting statements on this. According to the legislation, the taxpayer is required to have an ABN as at 12th March, 2020. There is nothing mentioned in the legislation from what I can see, and I've gone through it multiple times, that the entity needs to be registered for PAYG withholding as of 12th March 2020. So to butt in, let's just quickly recap the conditions you need to meet to qualify for the cash flow boost. To qualify, you need to pass seven tests. You need to meet seven conditions. And to make it easier, let's give these seven conditions a name. Let's call them the turnover test, the existence test, activity test, payment test, notification test, objective purpose test, and lodgement test. Your turnover needs to be below 50 million in 2018-19. And as you know, grouping provisions apply to determine the total turnover. That is the turnover test. To pass the existence test, you must have had an ABN as of 12th of March 2020, so newly registered entities don't qualify. For the activity test, you must have had assessable income in the 2018-19 financial year or have made a GST supply, be it a taxable supply or a GST-free supply or an input source supply, some GST supply between the 1st of July 2018 and the 12th of March 2020. So dormant shelf companies don't qualify. That is the activity test. And we covered those three in the last update about the cash flow boost. And then there is another test, a fourth test, and that is that you must have made an eligible payment that requires pay-as-you-go withholding between the 1st of January and the 30th of June. And let's focus on this payment test for now. We will come to the other three tests, the notification, objective purpose, and lodgement tests later. For the payment test, as Andrew just said, there is no requirement per se that you must be registered for pay-as-you-go withholding on the 12th of March 2020. The notification and objective purpose tests might kick in later, but just for the payment test, it doesn't matter when you make the payment as long as it is before the 30th of June. So let's jump back in and look at the payment test. Some payment must have been made hmm. that required withholding. The actual amount withheld can be zero. So it's not that actually withholding took place, but a payment must have been made that required withholding. And when should this payment have occurred? Before the 12th of March or sometime before the 30th of June? Good question. And you're quite right that there is, I guess, what's called a payment test. To be entitled to the cash flow boost, an entity is only entitled if it makes a payment in the period. And the period will depend on whether it's a quarterly or monthly lodger, but it is not the period before 12th of March 2020. It's a payment during the relevant BAS period, which essentially is up until 30 June 2020. So that's the period. There needs to be a payment in the period and the entity must withhold an amount from the payment. But that, that amount can be zero. Yeah, well, it says must withhold an amount from the payment regardless of whether the entity actually withholds the amount. So they need yeah. to make a payment which there is a withholding obligation and that payment does not need to be made before 12th of March 2020. 
But yeah. what payments qualify as a payment under this act? And I think it's salary and wages, director yeah. fees, yeah. eligible retirement or termination payments, compensation payments, and voluntary withholding from payments to contractors. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Anything covered by subdivision 12B, 12C, or 12D of the withholding obligations. And and yeah, you're quite right. That's salary and wages, director's fees, retirement, termination payments, compensation payments, and, and voluntary withholding from payments to contractors. They're all covered by it. Picking up from our last discussion, anything that would go into W2, W3, or W4 on the best statement if the amount had actually been withheld. So if you had actually withheld an, an amount as you were obliged to do, and mm-hmm. if that amount had to go into W2, W3, or W4, then you would have made a payment that qualifies. Looking at wages, do they need to be paid in cash or is it also possible to say something was a wage when the company paid a private expense, for example? Now, the legislation, the cash flow boost legislation says the payment needs to be made. It doesn't then define what, what exactly a payment is. It's going to be in the form of salary or wages. So, the, I guess the problem with paying like a private expense is there's probably a real question mark and the ATO may take the view that that's actually not salary and wages. And for example, it could be just an ordinary payment, not not in the character of salary and wages, just a payment to the shareholder, Division 7A, all that kind of thing. Or let's say the business pays the credit card of the uh, business owner and Mm. this credit card has private and business expenses running through the credit card. Would then the payment of these private expenses count as a wage payment if it is treated as a wage payment. Yeah, I guess the problem there is it's when you're doing those credit card payments, there's nothing to suggest that that's salary and wages at all. You're really trying to characterize it after the fact and there's always a danger doing that. Probably a cautious area. to lodge an activity statement to receive the cash boost? Because when you look on the ATO website, they do somewhere say you must lodge your activity statement to receive the cash flow boost. So if our business owner now has made payments that do require withholding, but he or she is neither registered for GST nor for pay-as-you-go withholding, hence doesn't lodge an activity statement would they then still be able to claim the cash flow boost? And my assumption at the moment from what you're saying is, yes, they would be. It might throw a spanner into the ATO's admin processes how to do this, but just by the letter of the law, they would be qualified, correct? The letter of the law does say that there is a notification requirement in, in all circumstances. What the legislation says is the entity needs to notify the commissioner the legislation says that's going to be in the approved form. The entity does need to notify the commissioner. The legislation doesn't say how that's to be done, but oh, I see. So does the need AT- to be a notification. It does need to be a notification and the notification mm-hmm. needs to be in the approved form. Hence, the ATO can define what the approved form looks like. So they can say yeah. the approved form is only through the allotment of a 
BAS. And then they could also say the approved form is only through lodgement of a BAS that does show pay-as-you-go withholding. So that would mean while pay-as-you-go withholding registration wasn't required as of the 12th of March, it would then mean that you need to have registered by the 30th of June to make a payment that requires withholding and then you either report zero or one dollar or a thousand dollars or whatever it is in w2 w3 or w4 i suspect that's probably correct i guess the question is how do you how do you lodge how do you notify the ato in a in the approved form of your withholding requirements without registering for payg withholding and i can't say i'm an expert on to answer that question but i suspect yeah you'd need to register and lodge in with the usual process So now let's come to the sole traders. Hmm. That seems to have created quite a lot of discussion out there. And we received quite a few listener questions of which I just want to read you two. One is from Rachel Palmer and she writes, Hi there, I just listened to your Cash Boost episode which broadcasts the conversation with Andrew Henshaw from Velocity Legal. He seems to be saying a business does not need to be registered for PAYGW to receive the minimum $10,000 payment. But everywhere I look, I can only see that this boost is available to employers only. So how does a sole trader who does not employ anyone get it? And then the second listener question is from R. Chen on the 2nd of April, and he writes, Regarding no or late PAYG withholding registrations, per your suggestion, even a sole director in a company who has been accessing company profits as a shareholder and not taking any wages can qualify for the boost. Please have a look. It does not seem right. So those are just two listener questions. And so I think some of it we have answered already, but I think we need to look at it now through the lens of a sole trader because maybe the story is completely different for them. Yeah, yeah, they're really good questions. So starting with Rachel's question on the sole trader issue, and I think there was a bit of confusion at the time, which one of the examples that I believe the ATO had on the website that I can't find anymore did have a sole trader example. Oh, really? So they actually used a sole trader as an example to show that even a sole trader can qualify for the cash boost, as far as you remember. Yeah, that's as far as I remember. So sole traders can technically qualify for the cash flow boost, but the problem is the sole trader needs to make a payment which is covered by the withholding obligations that we've referred to already. So, for example, a sole trader can still have an employee. It still is possible to have an employee. You're right. As long as a sole trader is just a regular employee, we have no issue. We have W1, we have W2, and they qualify. There is no question about their eligibility. The question is a sole trader who doesn't employ I think where you have a sole trader who does not employ anyone, I think it's probably going to be very difficult or even not possible to qualify for the cash flow So the only way they could qualify is if they do voluntary withholding on contractor payments. Yeah. And I suppose if they start, if a sole trader starts doing that now, there's a real risk of avoidance provisions coming into play for something that, that's sort of just changed to to create a withholding obligation. It's a bit of an unfortunate one that, that sole traders can't, in a lot of circumstances, they actually can't get the benefit of the cash flow boost. The silver lining, if there is a silver lining, is that sole traders can access the job 
Keeper scheme, which is a separate scheme that's been announced. I'm just a little bit shocked that sole traders, so many tradies, so many small business owners who really are the engine of our nation, that they go empty with this. Yeah, and just purely based on the illegal entity they chose. Yeah, it's a really good question. And then turning to the listener question from our Chan, where you have a company, it may qualify for the cash flow boost if it has the shareholder, if the shareholder is an employee. So it's a complete different situation between a sole trader and a company, even if that company is just really essentially one person behind it. That's a very good point. So let's now talk about a company that just has one operator. And if this operator hasn't paid him or herself a wage yet and just took dividends or maybe nothing because the company is still making a loss, hmm. can they now register for pay-as-you-go withholding after the 12th of March and still start paying a wage? Of course, not because of the cash boost, because for other reasons, but would that still qualify? So I'll give you the black letter law answer first, and then we'll talk about the avoidance provisions. So according to the black letter law, so long as the entity had an ABN as that 12th of March, and assuming it wasn't registered for PAYG withholding at the time and had activity last year, then if it now makes a payment, for instance, to the shareholder as a salary or wage, all of the requirements in the black letter law have been met. Now, the thorny issue here is regarding avoidance. The avoidance provision says that the entity or persons associated with the entity, they cannot enter into a scheme for the sole or dominant purpose of making an entity entitled to the cash flow boost or increasing the amount to which an entity is entitled to. It's very important with avoidance legislation to interpret it correctly. The avoidance legislation is quite similarly drafted to Part 4A, but not exactly the same. The key thing that I want to talk about is this requirement of sole or dominant purpose. Now, when people usually hear the word purpose, they think of subjective motivations, think about what that person who did that action, what's, what, what is in their head when they do it. It's very clear from the Part 4A jurisprudence that purpose is not a subjective purpose. It's an objective purpose. And it can be a little bit difficult to understand the difference between the two. An objective purpose is looking at what are the consequences of or sort of results of an action, just looking at it from an outsider's perspective. Subjective purpose is looking at what the actor had in their head at the time. It's very important to have this distinction when thinking about whether these avoidance rules will apply or not, because it's very different to have in your head thinking, I'm going to do this to get the cash flow boost. That's not what the test is. The test is what the objective purpose of whatever action what is. What does it, yeah. So the objective purpose is basically what would other people think why you did this if they watched you doing this? Based on what has occurred. Yes, that's yes. correct. Yeah. Yes. Yep. That's really the only reason it can work because if you make it a subjective purpose, nobody can look into another person's head and can prove, yes, you did think that 
you really thought this at the time and that's why you did it. So yeah. the uh, objective purpose is, and is the, courts like, the been, only purpose that can work. Yeah, the courts have been very clear on this in the context of part 4A, that purpose, that subjective purpose is not relevant. It's objective purpose. So what does that action achieve what does it do? And if it can only, if it only does things related to tax, or the only reason it can sort of be explained is via tax, then you're going to have a problem. Okay, so now let's look at this sole director and shareholder of the company. The company is active, it has sales, etc. The director always had the intention of starting to pay himself a wage. He was always about to register for pay as you go withholding, but he was still maybe not registered for GST or on an annual lodgement of GST. So the issue was always put into the back drawer, but there was always the intention of registering for pay-as-you-go withholding since the director is actively working in the company and it's proven that they are working because they are sales. Would that then still pass the objective test? It's difficult to make a broad statement, either yes or no on that. Mm, but what it I would, depends on individual circumstances. It does depend on the individual circumstances. But what I would say is it's it's sort of been suggested, at least by some people, that you're always going to have a problem if the person wasn't drawing a wage previously and you put a wage in now. I don't think that's correct. I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And I think in some situations, for example, the one that you described, you may have quite a legitimate argument that the person should have been drawing a wage and that's entirely appropriate. I think you're you're going to run into more problems where you've got an entity that's been you know, perhaps trading for many years. There's never been a salary all of a sudden there's a salary for just just for this period and then there's never a salary again. I think that sort of situation is a lot more risky. So that means if this sole director now starts paying himself a salary from the 1st of January or 1st of July or whatever it is and then continues to do that for the years to come, then it might look more legitimate. Yeah, yeah, quite definitely. Because if you say, well, the purpose of if you're the ATO looking at this and you say, okay, what was the what was the purpose of making this person a, an employee or, or paying them a wage? I think it's a lot more difficult to say that your sole or dominant purpose was to um, get the cash flow boost. No, well, your main purpose was to make them an employee, and that has you know employees have have rights and obligations and other things attached to that, which are completely unrelated to the cash flow boost. I would like to come back to the anti-avoidance provisions with you next, but can I first talk to you about registered charities? Yeah, sure. Charities registered with the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, which I think is called ACNC, isn't it? ACNC, yeah. Yeah, ACNC. So charities registered with the ACNC do qualify. And then it says on the ATO website, do qualify regardless of when they were registered. Does it mean regardless of when they were registered as a charity or regardless of when they were registered for pay-as-you-go withholding? Or do you have any inkling of what the ATO means with the regardless of when they were registered? So we've previously been talking about the requirement that the entity needs to have an ABN as at 12th of March and that the entity needed to have some activity, broadly speaking, for the last financial year. Those two requirements do not apply if the entity is an ACNC registered charity at any time in the period. 
So in other words, if the entity is an ACNC registered charity at any time between today or even previously and 30 June, it has met those requirements. It did not need to have an ABN at 12th of March, 2020. It did not need to be registered for PAYG withholding as at 12th March, 2020. And it did not need to have activity last financial year. It can be a new entity set up today. Oh, really? Yeah. And that's quite deliberate by the explanatory memorandum to the legislation specifically mentions this. That it is very much intended that this will apply to potentially new charities that are set up to deal with some of the COVID-19 fallout. So yeah. it's intended but, to apply to new charities as well. But the thinking is it's so tedious to register with the ACNC that there won't be so much abuse because it's quite tedious to be registered with the ACNC. So unlikely that somebody would get registration if they were just setting up charities left, right and centre to qualify for the cash flow boost. Absolutely. And the, the important point is with, an, with a charity as well, it's subject to very strict rules about what it can and can't do. Broadly, it can't benefit related people. That's the reason why there's less, I guess, integrity measures around ACNC registered charities. Just to summarize, the charity doesn't need to meet the existence test. So it doesn't need an ABN, doesn't need an yep. ABN ever. Yep. It doesn't need accessible income ever, which no. of course is very often applies because charities usually don't have accessible income. Yep. And then you also said it doesn't need a pay as you go withholding registration, which of course I'm not sure what you meant because we had established before that you actually don't need a pay as you go withholding registration in theory because all you need to have done is making a payment. Do you mean the charity doesn't need to have made a payment that would be subject to withholding tax? No, the charity still needs to make a payment that is subject to withholding tax. The point that I was more making was just there's no requirement that it had a PAYG withholding registration as at 12th of March, 2020. Yes, that's not a requirement anyway. It's not a requirement we had, anyway. No. We had established. So the payment test basically still applies that it needs to have made some payment that it was subject to pay-as-you-go withholding. So either employ somebody mm. or, for example, make voluntary withholding on contractor payments. Since you said they don't need to have existed by the 12th of March, they can be established now, for example, to deal with the COVID-19 issue. Does it then also mean that if the charity started now doing voluntary withholding on contractor payments, that would be okay? Yeah, quite potentially. That's quite of a similar situation to a private business. The avoidance rules still do apply to a, to a charity so they still could potentially apply as well. Good. So charities who don't employ could, in theory, by the black letter of the law, start doing voluntary withholding on contractor payments. But the question is always whether it gets through the anti-avoidance provisions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's go back to the anti-avoidance provisions. So let's first see what the anti-avoidance provisions actually target. And I think there are basically 10, I'm sure there's a lot more, but I hmm. made a list of 10 things people could do trying to boost their cash flow boost. And the first one is, if I may just quickly run through this list. Number one, taking on a related party as an employee between 12th of March, 2020 and 30 June, 2020. Number two, paying directors' fees for the first time between the 12th of March 2020 
and the 30th of June 2020. Number three, entering into voluntary withholding arrangements with contractors for the first time between the 12th of March 2020 and the 30th of June 2020. Number four, increasing the amount of the relevant pay-as-you-go withholding between the 12th of March 2020 and the 30th of June 2020. Number five, bringing forward pay to the month of March 2020, only applicable for large and medium withholders who lodge a BAS or IAS monthly. Number six, suspending salary sacrifice arrangements to increase PAYG withholding on salary. Number seven, Varying withholding arrangements due to employees choosing not to claim the tax-free threshold. Number eight, increasing withholding amounts for other reasons to increase the pay-as-you-go withholding amount. Number nine, restructuring from a sole trader or partnership into a company so that the corporate entity can pay a salary or director's fees. Number 10, paying a bonus to a related party. So any of these 10 actions might increase your cash flow boost in theory, but then there is the anti-avoidance provision. You need to pass the objective purpose test. Back to Andrew. Just quickly jumping at this point number nine, restructuring from a sole trader to a company. That is a big step for $20,000, but it is quite possible that the sole trader had intended to change to a company for a long time and hence why not now and then still qualify i can imagine number nine will probably be okay if you can argue that you had intended to restructure for a while and you, it just happened to fall into the cash boost period don't you agree yeah well i suppose the problem with that scenario though is that the company unless it's already set up and had an abn as at 12th of march and also oh, did yes. Did undertake activity last year, the company won't won't be eligible. But you could think of a scenario where it's a company that already existed. Perhaps activities of the sole trader have been moved into the company. Yes, but even then, the company would have been a dormant company before, and hence wouldn't have had activity. But maybe the company already had some activity, hence would have passed the test, but didn't do mm. any wage payments, and so now the business of the sole trader is moved into this company, and then hence you have the wage payments. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think, so it's, it's probably going to be difficult to find a scenario where this would be applicable, but quite potentially, if they intended to do this all along, difficult to say that, well, restructuring was something you did just to get the cash flow boost because that does have a lot of other real yes. effects. Good. So, these are 10 ways you could try to boost your cash flow mm. boost. I would, say, I would say 11 is uh, paying a bonus to a, to a non-related party as well. So, that's another option. Yeah, that's true. I pay you a bonus now and then you do the work next quarter for free or something. That's a very good point. So these are 11 ways to boost your cash flow boost. But then of course, it could also be, all of this could also be for a legitimate reason. So how to tell whether it's a scheme or a legitimate reason. And I guess we are coming back to the objective purpose, correct? So it's, it's basically in the hands of the ATO to decide whether they think it smells or it doesn't smell. It's in the hands of the ATO in the first instance to decide whether they think that there has been an activity which has the sole or dominant purpose of maximizing the cash flow boost. And then ultimately in the hands of a court to determine that. That's a big weapon. So it basically means that if you do any of this, a, do it 100%. So, for example, if you pay a wage, make sure you pay super, make sure you 
cover it for work, cover, you do pays, you go withholding, etc. And also have really good reasons why this change happened. So that anybody who knows those reasons would say, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You clearly didn't do it just because of the cash boost. Yeah, it has to have real consequences that are not related to tax. So if an action is being taken solely to try to get the cash flow boost, those actions are going to be a lot more risky. If they have other purposes, both objective and also really sort of as a smell test subjectively, you're going to be on a lot safer ground. To summarize, the main point is really, and it's not good news, it's not what I had hoped to hear, but it basically means sole traders who are not employing have a problem. The only way they can qualify is if they do voluntary withholding on contractor payments and they would need a good reason why they suddenly start doing that. Yeah, or or they take on an employee now. But again, they can't just take on an employee that does nothing. Yes, Um, a 90-year-old grandmother or something. You know, yeah, or or the sole trader can't even operate the business now and why are they taking on an employee? If it's an example where a sole trader has been operating and they might legitimately need assistance, they could consider taking on an employee now. And then they would qualify. if, If that is quite a legitimate action, it would qualify, yeah. There was one other listener question, which I think already kicks into what we just discussed regarding the anti-avoidance provisions, and that's from Nancy Nancy Koch. And she said, if an employee makes additional pay-as-you-go payments from their weekly wage, will this affect the cash boost from the ATO incorrectly? And my thinking is, yes, if you do more withholding than the official tables would require, then that would raise questions. But the question is, of course, whether the ATO would raise this as an issue. But I guess they do. I'm sure they run computer programs. They can see exactly who's getting how much. They can run computer programs through the income and see how much was being withheld. And if a lot more is withheld than necessary, it probably will be flagged as an issue. Yeah, the legislation says it looks at the amount that must be withheld under those relevant subdivisions. So, if an entity is withholding more than it's required to in the situation, then it won't actually be effective. It just doesn't meet the black letter law. It's it's the amount that must be withheld that's relevant. I can think of scenarios where you might have actions that change the amount that needs to be withheld. Um, for instance, the amount that needs to be withheld is different if an employee is claiming the tax-free threshold or not. So question, I guess, whether if all the employees choose to um, suddenly stop claiming the tax-free threshold and therefore the amount that the employer must withhold goes up, I would think something like that does meet the black letter law. Then there's a question of whether that's avoidance. Actually, just very quickly, actual payment. I think a lot of tax agents and accountants suffer anxiety at the moment because, of course, the clients are desperate for payment and there is no payment yet. So we still have another probably four weeks to go until the payment actually comes. On the ATO website, it also says very clearly, no payments will be made before the 28th of April. So lodging your Mm -hmm. best early won't change anything regarding timing. Have you heard anything regarding 
timing around payments? Yeah, as far as I'm aware, my understanding is exactly the same as yours, that the ATO won't make any payments until the 28th of April. So by all means, lodge buzzers, but it seems fairly clear from that statement that there's still a few more weeks to wait for that payment. Welcome back. So let me just very quickly run you through the seven tests again. And I can imagine you find it quite boring by now, but I find it very helpful to break the conditions up into seven clear steps, seven conditions you need to meet. The first three conditions, the turnover, existence and activity test, we already covered in the last update last Monday and we touched on them again today. So I think those are quite clear. And then today we looked at the payment notification and objective purpose test. And let me just very quickly touch on those again. For the payment test, you must have made an eligible payment that requires pay-as-you-go withholding. So, for example, payment of salary and wages or director fees or voluntary withholding for contractor payments. And to pass the payment test, you could still make those payments. As long as you make them before the 30th of June, you pass the payment test. Then there's a notification test. You need to notify the ATO in the approved form that you have done the pay as you go withholding and the approved form is your BES. So to pass the notification test, you need to register for pay as you go withholding before 30th of June 2020. So it doesn't have to be before the 12th of March. So that's the notification test. And that is also quite relaxed around whether you do it before or after the 12th of March. But then there is the objective purpose test. And if you register or have registered for pay-as-you-go withholding after the 12th of March, there is a risk that the ATO will argue that you only did this to qualify for the cash flow boost. So you need to have a valid reason other than the boost why you did this. And this, of course, applies to anything else you do after the 12th of March. Any of the 11 actions we went through before that might increase your cash flow boost for any of these, the main question is whether you pass the objective purpose test. Is there a valid reason why you did this apart from increasing the amount of your cash flow boost? And then there's a seventh condition and I forgot to ask Andrew about it. And I wish I had because that condition is not as straightforward as it sounds. The start of it does, but then it gets a little bit fuzzy. The first is straightforward. To receive the cash flow boost, you must lodge your BES. And that is straightforward. For your BES from March to June, you receive any relevant cash boost about a month after the due date of that BES statement or after you actually lodge, whatever is later. So you either get it a month after due date if you lodge on time or you get it sometime after you actually lodge. And even if you are late lodging your best, you still get the cash flow boost after you lodge, as long as you lodge within two years of the due date. And when I say you get the cash flow boost, what I mean, of course, is that it is credited to your ATO integrated client account, but any credit after that you can request as a refund. But what is not straightforward is the lodgement of your 2019 tax return or any best you need to pass the activity test. As you know, you need to have accessible income in the 2019 income year or a GST supply between 1st of July 2018 and the 12th of March to pass the activity test. And 
the ATO says on their website that the tax return or best to prove this assessable income or GST supply to pass the activity test, those tax returns or best must have been lodged by 12th of March 2020. And that, of course, is a problem because most of us won't have lodged the 2019 tax returns yet by the 12th of March 2020 because as tax agents, we have a lodgement program. So we lodge a lot of our clients' tax returns in the second half of March or April or May, so clearly after the 12th of March. So we have an issue. However, on the ATO website, they say, where you do not have any income tax assessments for prior years, and that applies to us because we don't have the 2019 income tax assessments yet for a lot of our clients. So the ATO says, where you do not have any income tax assessments for prior years, you may still be eligible if we are satisfied based on other information we hold that you are in business and would have an aggregated annual turnover under 50 million. So, I think the ATO just raised this issue to prevent businesses from going back and lodging amendments of previous tax returns to get below the 50 million threshold. So based on this, I think we can put this issue aside. We just need to lodge bears and tax returns on time. And then hopefully all this is not an issue. But just be aware that the cash boost is linked to the lodgement of bears and 2019 tax returns. So this is all about the cash flow boost to date, seven conditions or tests, turnover, existence, activity, payment, notification, objective purpose, and lodgement. In the next regular episode, episode 238, Melissa Donnelly will talk about converting conversations into clients. And then, of course, we urgently need to cover the JobKeeper payments. So you have a lot coming your way. Thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. The other thing I would suggest is is the JobKeeper next time because apparently Parliament's oh, yes. meeting on Wednesday, but as far as I can see, the legislation's not available yet, but it's going to be available very soon. So I think we'll be able to go through the legislation as well, which will be a, quite a large exercise. Of course, it all depends on the details then, and we won't know those until next Wednesday. But mm. my quick question will be, how do we ensure that those payments will trickle through to the employee? My understanding is that there will be some sort of requirement that the employer pays the amount that they get on, and they have to, they cannot profit quote unquote, from the payments. So in other words, if they receive a payment, they have to pass that money on. The question then is, well, what if they don't? Unfortunately, there's always sort of unscrupulous people out there and there's going to be someone who, who doesn't. What happens then? What are, the, what are the penalties? What are the consequences for that employer? I would hope that the book is sort of thrown at them, but that we'll, um, we'll see once we have some legislation. Mm-hmm.